Chapter 15 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 15 Departure from the Kabul, Arab Sagacity, The Hole, The Lake of Katanuya, Return of Sutum, Encampment of the Shamal, Arab horses, their breeds, their value, their speed, Sheikh Fehan, Yazidi villages, Falcons, an alarm about Maria, Eski Mosul, arrival at Mosul, return of Sutum to the desert. Mr. Hormuzd Rassam, having sufficiently recovered from his dangerous illness to be able to ride a Dulu, and no remains except pottery and bricks, having been discovered in the mounds of Umjajech, we left the encampment of Suleyman Aga on the 29th of April on our return to Mosul. We again visited the remarkable volcanic core of Kokup. As we drew near it, Midgewell detected in the loose soil the footprints of two men, which he immediately recognised to be those of Shamar thieves returning from the Kurdish encampments. The sagacity of the Bedouin in determining from such marks whether of man or beast, and from similar indications the tribe, time of passing and business, of those who may have left them, with many other particulars, is well known. In this respect he resembles the American Indian, though the circumstances differ under which the two are called upon to exercise this peculiar faculty. The one seeks or avoids his enemy in vast plains, which, for three-fourths of the year, are without any vegetation. The other tracks his prey through thick woods and higher grass. The quickness of perception is the result of continual observation and of caution encouraged from earliest youth. Whilst the child in a civilised country is still under the care of its nurse, the Bedouin boy is compelled to exercise his highest faculties, and on his prudence and sagacity may sometimes depend the safety of his tribe. The expert Bedouin can draw conclusions from the footprints and dung of animals that would excite the astonishment of an European. He will tell whether the camel was loaded or unloaded, whether recently fed or suffering from hunger, whether fatigued or fresh, the time when it passed by, whether the owner was a man of the desert or of the town, whether a friend or foe, and sometimes even the name of his tribe. We encamped for the night near the mound of Thenanir, and resumed our journey on the following morning. Bidding farewell to the pleasant banks of the Kabul, we struck into the desert in the direction of the Sinjar. Extensive beds of gypsum or alabaster, such as was used in the Assyrian edifices, formed for some miles the surface of the plain. We soon approached a dense mass of reeds and rank herbage, covering a swamp called the Hole which extends from the lake of Katinuya to within a short distance of the Kabul. This jungle is the hiding-place of many kinds of wild beasts. Lions lurk in it, and in their thick cover the Bedouins find their cubs. During our journey an Arab joined us, riding on a delul with his wife. His two children were crammed into a pair of saddle-bags, a black head peeping out of either side. He had quarrelled with his kinsman, and was moving with his family and little property to another tribe. After a six hours' ride, we found ourselves upon the margin of a small lake, whose surface reflected the deep blue of the cloudless sky. In the midst was a peninsula, joined to the mainland by a narrow causeway, and beyond it a small island. On the former were the ruins of a town, whose falling walls and towers were doubled in the clear waters. The small town of Katanuya was, until recently, inhabited by a tribe of Arabs. A feud, arising out of the rival pretensions of two chiefs, sprang up amongst them. The factions fought, many persons were killed, and the place was consequently deserted 
one party joining the Thai Arabs near Nizibin, the other the Yazidis of Kerania. We traced the remains of cultivation and the dry watercourses, which once irrigated plots of rice and melon beds. The lake may be about six miles in circumference. The water, although brackish, like nearly all the springs in this part of the desert, is not only drinkable, but, according to the Bedouins, exceedingly wholesome for man and beast. It abounds in fish, some of which are said to be of very considerable size, and waterfowl and waders of various kinds congregate on the shores. We had scarcely resumed our march in the morning, when we spied Sutum and Koray coming towards us, and urging their fleet mares to the top of their speed. A Jebor, leaving our encampment at Umjajech, when Hormuzd was dangerously ill, had spread a report in the desert that he was actually dead. To give additional authenticity to his tale, he had minutely described the process by which my companion's body had been first salted, and then sent to Frankenstein in a box, on a camel. Sutum, as we met, showed the most lively signs of grief, but when he saw the dead man himself restored to life, his joy and his embraces knew no bounds. We rode over a low, undulating country, at the foot of the Sinjar hills, every dale and ravine being a bed of flowers. About five miles from Katinuyah, we passed a small reedy stream, called Sufeira, on which the Boraish, Sotom's tribe, had been encamped on the previous day. They had now moved further into the plain, and we stopped at their watering-place, a brackish rivulet called Sahel, their tents being about three miles distant from us in the desert. Their mares, camels, and sheep came to Sahel for water, and during the whole day there was one endless line of animals passing to and fro before our encampment. I sat watching them from my tent. As each mare and horse stopped to drink at the troubled stream, Sotum named its owner and its breed, and described its exploits. The mares were generally followed by two or three colts, who are suffered, even in their third year, to run loose after their dams, and to gamble unrestrained over the plain. It is to their perfect freedom whilst young that the horses of the desert owe their speed and the suppleness of their limbs. It may not be out of place to add a few remarks on the subject of Arab horses. The Bedouins, it is well known, divide their thoroughbreds into five races, descended, as some declare, from the five favourite mares of the Prophet. The names, however, of these breeds vary amongst different tribes. According to Sutum, who was better acquainted with the history and traditions of the Bedouins than almost any Arab I ever met, they are all derived from one original stock, the Koheleh, which, in course of time, was divided, after the names of celebrated mares, into the following five branches. Obayen Sherak, Hebda Zahi, Manekia Hedreshki, Shoemach Sablach, and Margob. These form the Kamse, or five breeds, from which alone entire horses are chosen to propagate the race. From the Kamse have sprung a number of families no less noble, perhaps, than the original five, but the Shamar receive their stallions with suspicion, or reject them altogether. Among the best known are the Watna Kersan, so called from the mares being said to be worth their weight in gold. Noble horses of this breed are found amongst the Arab tribes inhabiting the districts to the east of the Euphrates, the Benilam, al Kamiz, and al Kathire. Kalawi, thus named from a wonderful feat of speed performed by a celebrated mare in southern Mesopotamia, Jayetani, and Jofa. The only esteemed race in the desert, which, according to Sutum, cannot be traced to the Kamse, is the Saklawi, although considered by the Shamar and by the Bedouins of the Gebel Shamar 
as one of the noblest, if not the noblest, of all. It is divided into three branches, the most valued being the Saklawi Jebran, which is said to be now almost extinct. To understand how a man, who has perhaps not even bread to feed himself and his children, can withstand the temptation of such large sums, it must be remembered that, besides the affection proverbially felt by the Bedouin for his mare, which might, perhaps, not be proof against such a test, he is entirely dependent upon her for his happiness, his glory, and, indeed, his very existence. An Arab possessing a horse unrivalled in speed and endurance, and it would only be for such that enormous prices would be offered, is entirely his own master, and can defy the world. Once on its back, no one can catch him. He may rob, plunder, fight, and go to and fro as he lists. No man has a keener sense of the joys of liberty, and a heartier hatred of restraint, than the true Bedouin. Give him the desert, his mare, and his spear, and he will not envy the wealth and power of the greatest of the earth. He blunders and robs for the mere pleasure and excitement which danger and glory afford. A mare is generally the property of two or more persons, who have a share in her progeny, regulated by custom and differing according to the tribe. The largest number of horses, as well as those of the most esteemed breeds, are still to be found, as in the time of Burkhardt, amongst the tribes who inhabit Mesopotamia and the great plains watered by the Euphrates and the Tigris. These rich pastures, nourished by the rains of winter and spring, the climate, and, according to the Arabs, the brackish water of the springs rising in the gypsum, seem especially favourable to the rearing of horses. The best probably belong to the Shamar and Anaza tribes. The present shape of the Gebel Shamar, Ibn Reshid, has, I am informed, a very choice stud of mares of the finest breeds, and their reputation has spread far and wide over the desert. The Nawab of old, the Ekbel Ed Dullah, a good judge of horses, who had visited many of the tribes, and had made the pilgrimage to the holy cities by the little frequented route through the interior of Najid, assured me that the finest horses he had ever seen were in the possession of the Sharif of Mecca. The Arab horse is more remarkable for its exquisite symmetry and beautiful proportions, united with wonderful powers of endurance, than for extraordinary speed. I doubt whether any Arab of the best blood has ever been brought to England. The difficulty of obtaining them is so great that they are scarcely ever seen beyond the limits of the desert. Their colour is generally white, light or dark grey, light chestnut and bay, with white or black feet. Black is exceedingly rare, and I never remember to have seen dun, sorrel, or dapple. I refer, of course, to the true-bred Arab, and not to the Turkoman or to the Kurdish and Turkish races, which are a cross between the Arab and Persian. The average height is from fourteen hands to fourteen and three-quarters, rarely reaching fifteen. I have only seen one mare that exceeded it. Notwithstanding the smallness of their stature, they often possess great strength and courage. But their most remarkable and valuable quality is the power of performing long and arduous marches upon the smallest possible allowance of food and water. It is only the mare of the wealthy Bedouin that gets even regular feed of about twelve handfuls of barley or of rice in the husk, once in twenty-four hours. During the spring alone, when the pastures are green, the horses of the Arabs are sleek and beautiful in appearance. At other times, they eat nothing but the withered herbs and scanty hay gathered from the parched soil and are lean and unsightly. They are never placed under cover during the intense heat of an Arabian summer, nor protected from the biting cold of the desert winds during the winter. The saddle is rarely taken from their packs, 
nor are they ever cleaned or groomed. Thus, apparently neglected, they are but skin and bone, and the townsman marvels at seeing an animal, which he would scarcely take the trouble to ride home, valued almost beyond price. The Shamar Bedouins give their horses, particularly when young, large quantities of camel's milk. I have heard of mares eating raw flesh, and dates are frequently mixed with their food by the tribes living near the mouth of the Euphrates. The Shamar and Anaza shoe their horses if possible, and wandering farriers regularly visit their tents. The Arab horse has but two ordinary paces, a quick and easy walk, sometimes averaging between four and five miles an hour, and a half-running canter. The Bedouin rarely puts his mare to full speed, unless pursued or pursuing. In the evening, as I was seated before my tent, I observed a large party of horsemen and riders on Delules approaching our encampment. They stopped at the entrance of the large pavilion reserved for guests, and, picketing their mares and turning loose their dromedaries adorned with gay trappings, seated themselves on the carpets. The chiefs were our old friends, Mohammed Emin and Ferhan, the great Shamar Sheikh. We cordially embraced after the Bedouin fashion. I had not seen Ferhan since the treacherous murder of his father by Nijib Pasha of Baghdad, to which he alluded with touching expressions of grief, bewailing his own incompetency to fill Sulfuk's place and to govern the divided tribe. He was now on his way with the Jabor Sheikh to recover, if possible, the government treasure plundered by the Hamoud, for which, as head of the Shema, he was held responsible by the port. After they had eaten of the feast we were able to prepare for them, they departed about sunset for the tents of the Jibors. I embraced Mohammed Eman for the last time, and saw him no more during my residence in Assyria. On the 4th of May, we made a short day's journey of five hours to a beautiful stream issuing from the Sinjar Hill, beneath the village of Kersa, or Chersa. A Bedouin of the Buraij tribe accompanied us, riding on a swift white dromedary of a true Nejid breed. This animal was scarcely taller than a large English horse. Leaving the plain, which was speckled as far as the eye could reach with the flocks and tents of the Bedouins, we skirted the very foot of the Sinjar. Kersa had been deserted by its inhabitants, who had rebuilt their village higher up on the side of the hill. Since the loss of Hatab, Sotum had never ceased pining for a falcon worthy to take his place. He had been counting the hours of his visit to this part of the Sinjar, known only to yield to the borders of the Persian Gulf in producing the finest and bravest hawks for the chase. He was not successful, however, in pleasing himself with those which were offered to him. Next day we made but little progress, encamping near a spring under the village of Aldina, whose chief, Murad, had now returned from his captivity. Grateful for my intercession in his path, he brought us sheep and other provisions, and met us with his people as we entered the valley. At his urgent request, I aided materially in inducing the people to pay the dues of the tax-gatherer, who was at that time in the village. During the negotiations, Sutung, surrounded by Kaimaras Yazidis, was sitting in the shade, examining unfledged hawks. At length, three were deemed worthy of his notice. One, being pretty well advanced in days, was sent to his tent for education, under the charge of the rider of the Nejid Delul. The others, being yet in a weak state, were restored to the nest, to be claimed on his return from Mosul. The largest bird, being a very promising specimen, cost five gazees, or one pound. The other, three gazees and a half, 
as the times were hard and the tax gatherers urgent for ready money. We rode on the following day for about an hour along the foot of the Sinjar Hill, which suddenly subsides into a low, undulating country. The narrow valleys and ravines were blood-red with gigantic poppies. The Bedouins adorned the camels and horses with the scarlet flowers, and twisted them into their own headdresses and long garments. Even the tiare dressed themselves up in the gaudy trappings of nature, and as we journeyed, chanting an Arab war-song, we resembled the return of a festive procession from some sacrifice of old. During our weary marches under a burning sun, it required some such episodes to keep up the drooping spirits of the men, who toiled on foot by our sides. Poetry and flowers are the wine and spirits of the Arab. A couplet is equal to a bottle, and a rose to a dram, without the evil effects of either. Would that in more civilised climes the sources of excitement were equally harmless. In the evening, Satum inveighed bitterly against a habit of some travellers of continually taking notes before strangers. I endeavoured to explain the object, and to remove his fears. "'It is all very well,' said the sheikh, "'and I can understand, and I am willing to believe, all you tell me. But supposing the Turks, or anybody else, should hereafter come against us, there are many foolish and suspicious men in the tribe, and I have enemies, who would say that I had brought them, for I have shown you everything.' You know what would be the consequence to me of such a report. As for you, you are in this place to-day, and a hundred days' journey off to-morrow, but I am always here. There is not a plot of grass or a spring that that man, alluding to one of our party, does not write down. Sir John's complaints were not unreasonable, and travellers cannot be too cautious in this respect, when amongst independent tribes, for even if they do not bring difficulties upon themselves, they may do so upon others. We had a seven hours' ride on the Delules, leaving the caravan to follow, to the large ruin of Abu Maria, passing through the Talafur. The Jahesh were encamped about two miles from the place. My workmen had excavated for some time in these remarkable mounds, and had discovered chambers and several enormous slabs of Mosul marble, but no remains whatever of sculpture. A short ride of three hours brought us to Eski, Old, Mosul, on the banks of the Tigris. According to tradition, this is the original site of the city. There are mounds and the remains of walls, which are probably Assyrian. Mosul was still nine caravan hours distant, and we encamped the next night at Hamaidat, where many of our friends came out to meet us. On the 10th of May we were again within the walls of the town, our desert trip having been accomplished without any mishap or accident whatever. Satum left us two days after, for his tents, fearing lest he should be too late to join the warriors of the Khorasekh, who had planned a grand gazoo into Najid. He urged me to accompany them, but I had long renounced such evil habits, and other occupations kept me in Mosul. Finding that I was not to be persuaded, and that the time was at length come for us to part, he embraced me, crammed the presents we had made to himself and his wives into the saddlebags, and, mounting his delure, rode off with Midwell towards the desert. End of chapter 15 Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth